This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all that you've given us, all that you've supplied for us, but above all for your word. For it is through your word that we learn who you are, through your word that we learn who we are, and it is through your word that we learn truth, absolute truth. We learn why you created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. We learn your plan and purpose for creation. We learn of sin. We learn of your solution to sin, and we learn of our future destiny with you. And, Father, we learn how to think as you would have us to think, that everything in your creation has been designed by you. Everything within your creation prior to as it was before the fall had its origin in your thinking. Everything. There is nothing in our experience that has not been related to sin. Nothing in our experience, no area of thought, no area of activity that was not established by you, created by you, instituted by you, and therefore there is nothing that is outside of your authority, and you have addressed all of this within your word, given us a framework of thought for every area in life so that there's nothing that we do, nothing that we're involved in, no activity that we pursue that should not be pursued first and foremost from a biblical viewpoint, a divine viewpoint. So, Father, now as we continue our study in Colossians and our study of music and worship, we pray that you would challenge us with what we learn, that we might be willing to uh, humble ourselves to submit our opinions, our tastes, or our likes and dislikes to the absolutes of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16, and today we're advancing into 17, but I'm going to be wrapping up in conclusion some final uh, thoughts, observations on the issue of singing, the issue of music in church, and thinking about these things within the framework of what God has revealed in his word, specifically the importance that the Word of God gives to singing. As we read in the Psalms earlier, uh, in the Old Testament, this was emphasized, and it is uh, part of the message of the Psalms calling us to uh, sing to the Lord. It is not calling you to sing beautifully. It is calling you to sing. Some of us, God has given abilities that are 
that are much better than others. Some of us, God has not gifted so well in terms of our voices, but God did not put an asterisk there with a footnote saying, sing joyfully to the Lord. Oh, yeah, but those of you who can't carry a tune in a bucket, y'all are excused from this. We don't find that anywhere. We have uh, uh, an emphasis in the scripture of the importance of singing. And as we see, this is how we as a congregation, how the, everyone in the body of Christ coming together in corporate worship glorifies God. We are to glorify God in singing, and we are, as we are to glorify God, Colossians says, in all things. We're to glorify God in everything that, that we do. So let's just review a little bit what, what we've covered. The basic command here, coming towards the end of this section in Colossians, which actually ends with 3.17, then 3.18 begins with some more specifics and application. We have this command to let the word of Christ, that's the word of God, uh, take up its residence within your soul. That's the idea there in the verb to dwell richly within us. It is to inhabit us. And as the word of God uh, enters into our soul and we think about it and meditate upon it, it is to live itself out within us. It is going to change our values. It's going to change our personal tastes. As we grow as Christians, we're going to find that over a period of time that God is going to change the desires of our heart. He is going to uh, help us to understand creation as he has created it, and those changes will come as the word of God changes us. And that's part of the command we find in Scripture, especially Romans 12.2, that we are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world or the cultural values around us, but we're to be transformed by the renewing, the renovation, the overhaul, the re-education of our thinking. So the Word of God is going to teach us how things are in reality, not as our background, our families, our friends, our, our, uh, all the influences on us as we grow up might, might have shaped us. So there'll be change, real change, and we truly can change because it's not based on who we are but on who God is. And this is a, a, a major issue, as I've pointed out before. Some of you uh, have experienced this in your families, perhaps. Some of you have experienced this in other churches. But there is a battle that is waged today in, in, in evangelicalism over this very issue of music. And I know that there are some who may have grown a little weary of this study because on the one hand, this isn't an issue for you. I'm just preaching to the choir, so to speak. And as far as you're concerned, you're ready to move on. Others of you, they may or may not be here, are a little irritated with this because they really don't want to submit their personal ideas about music to the Word of God because they like what they like. Well, the Word of God tells us that sometimes due to cultural influences and the culture spoken of in Scripture as worldliness, that that has given us values. We've learned values that don't coincide with the Word of God. And the Word of God uh, teaches us how to deal with every issue of life. There's no area in life, whether it's music, politics, law, ethics, art, uh, no matter what it is, literature, that 
is not addressed in some sense by the Word of God, giving us a framework for understanding it so that we can be engaged in every area of creation in a way that honors God. So we're to let the Word of Christ dwell within us richly, and then this is followed in the Greek text by two participles that indicate the, the result of this. And the first two results mentioned, both here and in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, uh, 19 and following, are teaching and admonishing one another. So you're to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with the result that we will teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. That phrase in the Greek essentially means wisely. Now, I haven't really talked about that very much, but even though this is written in Greek and the Greek word there is Sophia, and the Greek concept of Sophia has more to do with abstract knowledge and philosophy, that's not the biblical background for understanding wisdom. Wisdom is first introduced to us in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And remember, the writers of the New Testament, John, Paul, Peter, are all coming from a deeply embedded understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. So their concept of wisdom is not influenced by Plato and Aristotle, but it's influenced by Moses and David and Solomon. And so their concept of wisdom isn't that idea of sort of abstract um, abstract in, uh, intellectual pursuits, but it has to do with skill. One of the first times we run across the Hebrew word for wisdom, which is chokhmah, in the Old Testament happens in the context of God's instructions to Moses and the Jewish people to build the temple, I mean the tabernacle. And he, he puts his, gives his spirit or puts his spirit upon uh, two craftsmen. Now, it's interesting here because once he, th- this is also an illustration of, of artistic development and aesthetics. I've introduced that concept the last few weeks talking about uh, what is beauty, and that the Bible teaches that there is an ultimately an absolute reference point for beauty. Beauty is not something that is subjective. There are perhaps elements of personal taste, but beauty as beauty is ultimately grounded in and established in the character of God. He is the ultimate reference point for everything, including our sense sense of beauty. And God cares about beauty. He cares about beauty so much that when uh, the, he, he instructs the Israelites to build the tabernacle, what he does is he empowers these two craftsmen, Bezalel and Aholiab, so that they can skillfully, and the word there that's translated skillfully is that word translated wise elsewhere, chokmah, that they can skillfully uh, craft all of the different pieces of furniture, artifacts, tools, and vessels that are used in the in the tabernacle, from the uh, from the candlesticks, the menorahs, to the altar, to the censors, and all of the different things, they were made beautifully. God cares about beauty, and that in the Old Testament, as Israel came together to worship God, first in the tabernacle and later at the temple. There was a, there was beauty there, probably the most beautiful architecture and clothing anywhere in the ancient world. 
because it was to glorify God. It wasn't to emphasize the beauty and the skill of the Israelite craftsmen, but a reflection of God's glory, and it was all designed to bring uh, to bring glory to God. So the idea of wisdom from an Old Testament background is the idea of skill. So in this verse, we have this idea that we're to uh, result of being being uh, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. One result is we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And I suggest that the idea there is that this is done. The idea here is to do it skillfully. Skillfully, not just haphazardly, which all too often seems to be the case. Not just uh, there, there's a place for spontaneity, but there's also a place for for training, for teaching, for instruction, so that we can, as a congregation, sing better. We we may not sing like some large congregation uh, that is made up of hundreds of thousands of people with a lot of. Uh, money to invest in orchestra and instruments and organs, etc. But we are to do the best that we can do, and we should constantly challenge ourselves to do better, to be go beyond what we think uh, we can do. That is the idea of skill. So we are. The one result is the result here is to teach and admonish one another in in all wisdom or skillfully with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And again, I said that that even though you will read in different uh, uh, lexica, different commentaries, that psalms refers to the 150 psalms in the Hebrew Scripture, and hymns refers to uh, songs that are based upon those psalms, and spiritual songs would just be uh, songs that talk have spiritual content to them, that each of these words in the Greek is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to describe the book of Psalms. So th- these are not talking about three different categories of songs that we sing, but they're just they're, they're, they're synonyms of one another that refer to not just the Psalms of the Old Testament, but any songs that are sung to, uh, glorifying and honoring, honoring God. So we should understand this to be the command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with the result that you are teaching and admonishing one another wisely or skillfully in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then we hit a motivation, a means or manner uh, participle here by means or in the manner of singing with grace. The New King James or King James translated the, the word here as grace, it also has the meaning of gratitude. And here I believe this is not talking about grace, but it is talking about gratitude, uh, and it is talking about the mental attitude that is the, the foundation of our worship. We are grateful to God for all that he has done and supplied for us. And so we can sing with joy because it is a reflection of our own understanding of what God has has provided for us and what he has done for us. And we sing in gratitude in our, <clears throat> in our hearts, that is, in our thinking, to the Lord. So that when we come together at any time, whether it's on Sunday morning or other times as the body of Christ gathers together and we sing, we're not, it's not entertainment. We, we, we live in a, in a time since perhaps the late 19th century as the whole concept of entertainment and film 
and um, traveling shows and all of these different things in the early years to radio, television, all of these different developments where singing is, is, uh, has, has changed so much. If you go back from like mid-19th century back to the times of the, of the Bible, uh, much of singing was going to be where? At, at church, in a religious environment, or at home with uh, around um, a piano perhaps or a musical instrument, but it, it wasn't, you didn't have this, this whole idea of popular music that was uh, commercially produced that was, was done for the sake of, uh, of earning, earning a living. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but our whole concept of music has been radically changed. Uh, think about how often you hear music during the day. We hear music on elevators. We hear music at uh, the grocery store. We hear music in the malls. We hear music coming out of our uh, our radios in the car or our uh, iPhones. I saw a, com- uh, a cartoon yesterday. A cassette tape was speaking to an iPod and saying, "Remember the good old days." iPods are becoming passe now in light of smartphones because the smartphone's got iTunes on it. You play everything on your phone and everything else or your iPad or whatever. And music is now ubiquitous. But if you lived 150 years ago, it was, un- it was rare to be exposed to music. It was with- only within the context of church or family. And an- occasionally you might hear some group that traveling group of minstrels or something like that, that where there was singing uh, for entertainment. Or if you lived in urban areas where you had access to uh, orchestras or something of that nature, uh, opera, then you were exposed to something uh, on that level. But music, most of the time you never heard music. Our lives are almost dominated by music. But 150 years ago, it was a, a rare thing. So this is this is all uh, changed, and and within the context of Christianity, why do we sing? We and who, we sing to the Lord. So when we come together on Sunday morning or any other time as believers to sing, we're not singing this as a form of entertainment. We don't listen to the choir as a form of entertainment. We are singing to God reminding him of who he is, what we have learned about him, what he has done for us, and expressing our gratitude to him for all of these things in a way that encourages and teaches one another. That's the that's a completely different mindset than what we normally get when it comes to, to music. And, and it's so often sad but true that we think, oh, that music is just a couple of things we have to get through before we get to the real meat of, the, uh, of, the, of our meeting, and that is... That's the teaching. But that's not the way the Scripture looks at it. Scripture looks at it as a priority. It is not as significant as the teaching, perhaps, but it's not irrelevant, optional, or something that just sort of tacked on because that's tradition. It is something that is unique and distinct, I believe, to biblical revelation, Old Testament, New Testament. What other religious tradition is there that produce that has produced anything like the music that Christianity and uh, a Judeo-Christian heritage had produced. It's not there. We would not have the music we have today, even the pop music 
as perverted as it might get, is all the product of the advance in music that occurred in Western civilization through the impact of Christianity and people rejoicing over what God has done. And and in the Middle Ages, there was tremendous advance in music as they sought to push themselves to excellence in expressing their gratitude to God and, and, and the glories of God, rising to the heights of the great many of the great classical uh, composers and compositions that, that uh, we're familiar with. So we're to sing with gratitude in our hearts. That's our motivation to the Lord. And then Paul concludes, and whatever, and the Greek actually states it this way, all that you do, all that you do. And, and last week I, I pointed out that there's nothing in our lives that is outside the authority of God's word or God's word directing us or guiding us in how we are to think and live in those areas. There's no neutrality. How you conduct yourself as a leader, how you conduct yourself as an employee, how you conduct yourself as a as an employer, how you uh, what you read, what you like, your, everything ultimately comes down. How you spend your time, your leisure time, everything comes down and comes under the authority of God. And we're going to see this especially in the next uh, section dealing with. The, the family and marriage, the priorities and the relationship of husbands and wives, the focal point of the family as the core element in any society. And if that family unit breaks down, and when that breaks down socially, which is deeply threatened in our civilization today, then the whole civilization, all of society, is at risk of, of crumbling and coming apart at the seams. And this was something that was emphasized, I believe, at the Republican National Convention this last week in the introductory speech that uh, Marco Rubio gave for uh, prior to uh, Mitt Romney speaking, emphasizing that the family is the core element. And that's true. Whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, whatever you are, God made it this way. It's not just for Christians. He's, he built society. He made human beings as social creatures and he established the, what, what we've studied before is the five divine institutions that if these are not implemented, then society collapses. And when those are threatened, society collapses. And so that's, that's fundamental. So all that we do, everything is addressed by God, whatever we do in word or deed. And, and I pointed out last time that at the very least that applies to what he just said in the previous verse, the lyrics and the music, whatever you do, the, the, the words that you sing and the music that is played, I, it has broader application, of course. It includes everything in our life. We are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does it mean that we're to do these things in the name of the Lord Jesus? That means that we are to understand that as believers in Christ, members of the royal family of God, at the instant of salvation, we're all adopted into God's royal family. We're given a new identity. We're given new capabilities. We're given new uh, gifts, spiritual gifts. We are indwelt by all three members of the Trinity. Uh, the God the Holy Spirit makes our bodies a temple for the indwelling of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And as such, we have a new role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Now, you're either a really bad ambassador 
or you're a good ambassador seeking to improve yourself, but you don't have an option as a Christian. You're an ambassador. You are a representative to this world from the high court of heaven. That's what an ambassador is. An ambassador is an official who has been sent from one nation that he represents, represents the the king, the authority of that nation, and goes and lives in another culture in another nation. But he is not part of that world, that nation, that country in which he now resides. He is simply a representative of a foreign culture. We are representatives of a foreign culture, of a divine viewpoint culture, of the culture of of the kingdom of God, talking about that in its broadest sense, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. So we represent the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. And so what, when we do things, we're to do this as a representative of Christ, knowing that this reflects back upon Jesus Christ. I've told this story before. I'm going to make a little different application on it this morning just occurred to me. When I was in seminary, one of the things that you could do to earn a little extra cash was to house sit. And people would go out of town. Instead of leaving their homes alone uh, with nobody there, they would hire a seminary student for a nominal fee to come and live in their in their house and sometimes just to watch their kids. They'd go away for the weekend or for have to go on a business trip or whatever, and somebody could come in and babysit, watch the kids, whatever. One family that uh, were, they were they were believers. They went to I think they went to Northwest Bible Church in Dallas at the time, and uh, they said uh, they were telling me that they were getting a lot of remodeling done on their nice house over in University Park, and they said we always try to get a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon to work on our house because they're all working their way to heaven, and so they're. Their salvation depends upon the quality of their work. <laughs> Unfortunately, Christians often are too sloppy. Now, you can apply that to the presidential election if you wish. <laughs> Just an interesting thought that, that, that occurred to me. But as Christians, that's a sad commentary on the state of, of most Christians, we're grace-oriented. That means we don't really have to do it well because God's going to overlook. He's taking care of us. We're going to heaven no matter how sloppy we do the job. See, too often we're concerned about what little I can do to get by rather than how can I do this in a more excellent, in a more excellent way. We're asked, too often we're asking the wrong question. We ask a question such as, is this, uh, is this good enough? Or rather than, how can I do this better? Is this excellent enough? Our standards are mediocre. And this has really impacted contemporary worship and music. We have, like so many other areas in modern American culture, we have targeted the lowest common denominator in the culture. And we have imitated their tastes in order to attract them rather than shooting for the highest common denominator and pursuing excellence in all that we do and lifting up the culture. Some hundred years ago, a well-known historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee 
observed that cultures on the ascent imitate the upper classes, the fashions, the speech, the the taste of the people imitates the upper classes. They idolize the aristocracy, the rich, the wealthy. Cultures on the decline imitate the lower classes. They have disdain for the wealthy, the aristocracy. You can see where that applies in terms of much of uh, our contemporary political discourse. We're always running down this. Today it seems like the person who is successful, the person who has become wealthy, is the person that that, that we, di- we disdain, that we run down, that we have little respect for. And it, when it comes to music, it's the music of the ghetto that has become popular. It's the dress style of the ghetto that has become popular. Uh, if you go back and you can see this in films, you look at uh, films, you look at uh, pictures of mid-19th century Victorian England. And at that time, some of you remember this of your parents perhaps, in the even as late as the 50s and early 60s, you look at some of the pictures uh, in the early years when uh, John Kennedy was president. He still wore tails and a top hat. That went out just after that. A lot of things changed in the early 60s. That's considered a time when the Cultural Revolution really shifted uh, in, in, in America. But you remember, and I remember when I was a kid, that my mother would never leave the house without gloves and a hat. And if you go back into the mid-19th century, even the street prostitutes in Victorian England, even if they got their clothes out of a second-hand or third-hand shop or out of the garbage, they wore tattered gloves and tattered hats because that's how, that's how, the, that's how a lady would dress. And so they, were, they, they couldn't do it well, but they wanted to imitate their betters. They wanted to imitate the upper classes. That was a culture in ascendancy. Today we want to imitate the lower classes. We are a culture in decline. And that has leaked into the church, into evangelicalism, so we want to imitate the music that the culture imitates. Rather than pursuing excellence and looking up, we want to look at and imitate uh, mediocrity. But that is not what Scripture says. We're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, motivated by our gratitude to God the Father through him. This is paralleled in verses such as 1 Corinthians 6.20 that says, You were bought at a price, the price of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How you work, how you play, how you entertain yourself, what you do at church, everything from the songs and hymns that you sing to the content and the quality of the teaching you listen to should be done at the best of your uh, ability. We are to glorify God. This is the same in the Old Testament. Old Testament teaches Psalm 86, 9 and 86, 12. Psalm 86, 9 reads, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What does this word glorify mean? Psalm 86, 12, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, 
and I will glorify your name forevermore. The Hebrew word that is translated glory and glorified is a word that means heavy, literally. Kavad means something that is heavy, something that is weighty. Well, this literal meaning, as you can see, easily transferred to a figurative sense that if somebody was important, if they were significant in their contribution to society and you wish to honor them, then you would glorify them. You would emphasize their seriousness, their weightiness, their significance and importance to society, to the culture. And so the word came to primarily be used in this figurative sense of of bringing and focusing on the importance, the centrality, the significance and importance of someone. And so it gains this idea of of that which uh, which is to be glorified. And so we, when we glorify God, we are showing that he is the most important thing in our life, the most important value, the most important element of our life. And so to glorify God means that, that we're going to do everything we can to please him, not to get anything from him, that's legalism, but because he's already given us everything in, in, in Jesus Christ. And so this is going to impact every area, not just uh, the areas in terms of something such as music, but every single area of life. Now, the conclusion I pointed out, therefore, is that the Word of God gives us this framework for establishing standards for excellence in every area, excellence being identified as doing it to glorify God. In the Old Testament, as I pointed out previously, we have a number of different words used and used synonymously to emphasize the value of God's character and that he is the ultimate standard for beauty, for glory, for excellence. Words such as glorious, magnificent, splendor, splendid, beautiful, excellent, all of these, all of these emphasize God as the ultimate standard. Now, last time, previously, I've talked about the fact that one of the questions that people often raise is, well, when it comes to music, because music tends to be, a lot of music tends to, or seems to be part of a person's taste, how do we establish some, some precise standards? And with music and art, it's, it's difficult because there, there's, it's a little more abstract and a little more nebulous, but there are some standards, and I want to uh, hit those in a little more orderly manner today. Uh, first of all, the right question we should be asking is not, is there something wrong with this music? You'll often hear that when you talk to somebody about contemporary Christian music. You say, well, why is there something wrong with this? And the question should never be, is there, why is there something wrong with what I'm doing? But the question is, is this the absolute best that I can do? Is this something that I should value? Does what I am doing glorify God? Not looking at it from that negative, is there something wrong with this, but is this the best? Does this music, or this whatever I'm engaged in, does this bring glory to God? Second question that we should ask is, does this song that we're singing uh, reflect the creative acts of God? That's our standard. When we look at God's creation and his creative activity, we see planning, we see order, We see that he is technically excellent down to the most minute detail. Uh, Regarding music, we know that music is good or bad. Music can promote or take away from positive morality. 
and does it have purpose and, and meaning? All of this are, these are questions that we should ask related not only to the lyrics but even uh, of, of the music. Another question would be, does it display simplicity and complexity or as that would be applied to music, unity and harmony? God is one, but he is many. When we look at passages such as uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's really talking about a unity, uh, the Lord uh, uh, alone. Uh, he's a multiplicity. He exists as three persons who are equally one. That's unity and diversity. This reflects who God is. And this does not mean that, it, that every piece of music has uh, uh, an element of sophistication. I've pointed out there are different types of music. There's music that is performance-based. There's music that for in a church that a choir that practices more, has better voices, uh, would sing, but it wouldn't necessarily be good for congregation. And then there's music that's related to uh, to the congregation. This is all part of it. Third, I pointed out proportionality. There should be symmetry and balance. Now, one of the things that happens, now some of you may uh, be aware of this, some of you may not be, but in in uh, some churches that emphasize a lot of the contemporary Christian music, it, it, people can't really sing along with the music. It's very difficult for the congregation, and so they just sort of make it up as they go along, and you, you hear different different things going on in the congregation. And it's sort of like a big jam session, and that'll happen even with, with the musicians. And they're, they're up there, and you'll hear a singer, and she'll just riff off on something because that's what she wants to do at this particular time. She's the, you know, I used to call them the, you know, the, the, they always had the blonde. Uh, but if you're in a black church, of course, you don't have a blonde. You have something else. But that's what they do, and they'll just riff off on something. And this morning I was doing some research on looking up some different uh, uh, songs based on, uh, Psalm 103, and there's a lot of different uh, different uh, songs, worship songs, I use the term loosely, that have been based on Psalm 103, and there were two or three that were done in uh, in the context of, of black congregations and, and, and black worship, and you'll just hear this lead singer, and she just riffs off on something. No one can follow her. That's, it's all about her and her, her abilities. And I'm not picking on that one or that church or anything, but that is typical across the board in, in, in white churches, brown churches, black churches. We live in a culture where it's all about us, and, and we come together and we're emphasizing us as an individual. Look what I'm doing in, in church. And I, I grew up in, in uh, I was in band in high school, and the high, I went to Bel Air High School, and the band director for many years prior to uh, my going to high school had resigned a year before I went to high school, and they had a, a, a first-class band and orchestra over there. They brought in a guy at the last minute, uh, the year before I went, who destroyed the discipline in the band. He had been kind of a dance band leader, played mostly in nightclubs, and and uh, he needed needed work, so they brought him in, and he would just sit around, and he wanted to be the best friend of all the kids in the band. And all discipline broke down. And they would sit there and they would play and everybody would just play whatever they wanted to. They, they wanted to ad lib on all of their orchestrations and everything else. And, and by the time I came in, the band had just uh, had lost all discipline. We, they brought in a new band leader and he, he was, he, it's been three years before he got, could get rid of all of those that had their discipline destroyed the year before I, uh, I went there, before he had a fresh group that had discipline and could follow 
follow order. But that really is a picture of a lot of music in our culture. It's just everybody doing their own thing. And yet that's not what glorifies God. It doesn't fit these patterns that we see positively here of order, planning, uh, structure, something that is worked at and performed well in order to glorify God. Negatively, we want to avoid that which is unstructured, that which is difficult to sing. Uh, congregation should be able to sing well. Uh, unplanned or just simplistic as opposed to it can be simple but not simplistic shouldn't be trivial or banal trendy or mediocre and yet that too often is what we find in scripture we see an emphasis on these values in philippians 1 9 and 10 paul prays to for the philippians he says i pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment it's interesting. The Greek word for discernment there is aesthetics, where we get our word aesthetics. It's a form of knowledge. And, um, and that you can, uh, we are to advance in knowledge and discernment for the purpose that we may approve the things that are excellent. See, we're to be pursuing excellence, not mediocrity. It's not okay that it's just C plus work and it's passing. God is saying we need to learn how to approve that which is excellent, always pushing ourselves to the next level. Now, we may not all be able to be A-plus students all the time, but that doesn't mean that we should give up and just settle for mediocrity just because we don't have to put forth an effort. So we are to approve the things that are excellent, literally the things that are better. We are, This is okay, but... This is better. Let's pursue that which is which is better, not just that which is good enough. Philippians 4, 8, we're told, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, logizomai. That's that word we studied in Romans on on Thursday night, think, reason, think on these things, meditate on these things. We are to pursue excellence, not something that's just passes, that's just good enough, that, that's, well, it's popular, but it's not excellent. We're to constantly be pushing to a higher standard. In previous weeks, I've talked more related to music is the music because that's what few people talk about. It's easy for people to say, well, of course, we don't want to sing anything where the lyrics aren't biblical. But biblical is not just are the words right. There are a lot of biblical worship choruses that take Bible verses and just sing them in unending repetition, and there's no meaning there. There's no doctrinal development. The Psalms are the divinely inspired standard for the kinds of lyrics we should have in, in, in singing. And if you notice when you read through the Psalms, there's not just this endless repetition of a few phrases. One of the most respected scholars in dealing with contemporary trends in Christianity is David Wells. He is in, the, in his late 70s now. He doesn't travel as much as he used to, unfortunately, this is the man I really wanted to be our keynote speaker next year at the Chafer Conference, at the Pastors Conference in March. He has written a number of excellent books dealing with the biblical 
biblical issues related to ecclesiology as well as cultural trends and, and the problems there. He is the Distinguished Research Professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in, outside of Massachusetts, and he has analy- analyzed a number of contemporary chorus and worship books and hymn books. He got all, as much as he could, and he read through the words of all of these different things. And what he concluded was, of all of the praise and worship choruses, 65% had no doctrinal development. They're just a, a, a song like, like Alleluia. Uh, you sing Alleluia, that's the only word in the, in, in, the, in the chorus, and you sing it about 80 times. Depending on which church you're in, maybe you only sing it 25 times, but that's all you sing. There's no doctrinal development. Is it biblical? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Is there any doctrinal development? Is there any thought there? No. Uh, other other uh, songs, such as uh, the one I'll look at in just a minute, dealing with uh, Psalm uh, 103. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's biblical. But that's all there is to the song. You just sing it over repetitively many times and perhaps add another couple of lines from Scripture, but there's no doctrinal development there. You're just saying, singing the same thing over and over again. And so this is what he's looking at. Is there any teaching there? And that's what he's focused on, Colossians 3.16. Is there any teaching or admonishing there? Is there any doctrinal development? And he says two-thirds of all contemporary choruses, praise and worship music, there's no doctrinal development at all. He's not looking at is the doctrine right or not. He's not evaluating the content of the lyrics. He's just saying, are they developing any thought? He says, no, there's no thought development whatsoever. But if you look at all of the hymns, and all the hymn books, the traditional hymns that have been produced over the last 1,900 years by Christians, it's almost impossible to find a hymn that doesn't have doctrinal development. And once again, remember, he's not looking at the accuracy of the doctrinal development, just is there any doctrinal development? And so this is a tremendous indictment of the entire contemporary Christian uh, movement, and, and, and it is an indictment of Christianity because... The, the, the writers that we're developing are simply reflecting the impoverished doctrinal culture out of which they come. If they've never learned anything, how can they write anything of substance? They can't. And so when we have a dumbed-down, theologically illiterate, biblically illiterate culture, how can we produce artists that produce excellence in terms of the content of their writing. Well, we can't because they don't know anything. Well, let's look briefly at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is a psalm of some uh, 22 verses. I'm not going to... uh, I'll just read through parts of it. I don't want to take the time to read through the whole thing. But I want you to notice the doctrinal development that's here. The doctrinal development. When the psalmist gives a command, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. He doesn't stop there. He begins to tell us what those benefits are, why we should bless God. Now, the term blessing in this kind of context, as I pointed out before, is used as a parallel to praising God. So there's a sense in which blessing God is equivalent, synonymous to praising God. 
Why should we praise God? Why should we bless God? He forgives all of our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction, crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. And then there's a focus on who God is. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What tremendous content we have here. This is what they sang. They didn't just sing like... Like one chorus, I'm going to skip here. This is the Andre Crouch version. I learned this back in the uh, 70s when it came out. Uh, I'm not just some old fogey young people say, well, you're just old. You don't sing the music of our generation. Listen, it was my generation that started this. You're just young whippersnappers who've come along and uh, riding on the coattails of the rebelliousness of the baby boom generation. They destroyed it for you, and now you're just following in their footsteps. Uh, This started in the late 60s, and by the early 70s, it was already beginning to split churches. But this was the Andre Crouch contemporary version. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. So you've repeated it twice. He's done great things. He has done great things. He has done great things. Bless his holy name. See, there's no doctrinal development there. You're just repeating these words and often what happens what you see in 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 music is as the content diminishes the music intensifies because it's building it's got to produce some emotion somewhere because the words just don't have any content there so we're going to pump you up with the music and so you get the sway factor and some other things and that that pumps you up then a little bit later on i think in the 90s came out with the myron butler version and the lyrics are like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that it, and all that is within me. You sing that twice. Then you sing, I will bless your name four times, followed by bless the Lord, O my soul, four times, uh, followed by for you. Uh, let me see down at the bottom now. For you are holy, mighty, righteous, worthy. Bless the Lord, O my soul. See, there's no doctrinal development at all there. And then you go back and sing it another way. Now, today there's a popular version by an artist named Matt Redman. And if you, if you listen to him, as I did on the Internet a couple of times, the orchestration drives the emotion, not the words. And, and a congregation just couldn't sing along with it at all. It, it's a performance tune. It's not a congregational-type tune, for one thing. But it's very, very popular. But notice the words. The chorus is, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul. I'll worship your holy name. Now, it doesn't follow the psalm. because It's not necessarily intended to. That's not my point. It just doesn't say anything. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me uh, be singing when the evening comes. This is lousy poetry. Now, you take the lyrics from the great hymns of the faith. They were great poetry. Many of them were written as poetry before they were ever set to music. See, the language that we're singing to God should be excellent. It should be cast in the form of, in an excellent form. The, the, the standard should be excellent poetry. This is lousy poetry. 
And often what we find is if it's lousy poetry, it's lousy music. If it's, if it's been watered down content, you've got watered down music. If you've got trivial content, you've got trivial music. It sort of seems to go together. Now, if you go out on the Internet sometime, you ought to listen to this. You may find it in English, Sergei Rachmaninoff version, uh, Psalm 104, which is similar. Uh, notice there's more doctrinal content here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Blessed art thou, O Lord. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Blessed art thou, O Lord. The waters stand upon the mountains. Marvelous are thy works, O Lord. The waters flow between the hills. Marvelous are thy works, O Lord. In wisdom hast thou made all things. Glory to thee, O Lord, who has created all. So in this version, we see uh, a lot more content uh, given to this. Now, that's Psalm 104, which is across the page. I ran into, run into this when I was when I was uh, doing a search on this. But there's content there. There's something to focus your attention that follows the pattern uh, of the Scripture. Now, there's another version of Psalm 103 that's out there. I didn't want to play it, take up the time this morning, but you may want to Google it. It's written by uh, Mikhail Ipolitov, that's spelled I-P-P-O-L-I-T-O-V, and it uses all of the words of Psalm 103. Now, it would have to be a somewhat musically educated, skilled uh, audience, but it could very well be, it, it's based on a good chord structure, and it could be sung by a congregation. But it goes through the whole hymn, just about, so it leaves all the words in there. It's not saying nothing. See, this is an example of how we have trivialized music. And so when you hear, hear that said, that's the idea. Andre Crouch's version trivializes Psalm 103, and the music does too. It does nothing to honor, to push excellence to God. But you can kind of sway with it and feel good, but not because of the words, but just because of the orchestration. And so you're, you're like much music today, the emotions are manipul- manipulated uh, by the music, not the words. So some closing principles. How do we pick music to sing? First of all, the lyrics should reinforce and express biblical truth. The lyrics are to teach and admonish one another. It should be based on biblical truth, but it has to reinforce biblical truth and express biblical truth. We're not just singing the Psalms as they're written. This is the Isaac Watts revolution in the early 1700s where he, he realized that at the church at that time only sang the Psalms as they were written, but that left out all New Testament revelation. So he used the Psalms as a, as an inspiration to write uh, newer, new hymns that would also utilize New Testament revelation. So the hymns, the songs we sing, should reinforce and express sound biblical truth. Second, the lyrics must follow the principles of superb poetry. The lyrics should be really, you, you should look at the lyrics alone without the music. Is this good, good poetry? Is this expressing sound theology in a, in a way that utilizes the magnificence of the English language? Third, the music, the message of the music, not just the words, but the message of the music uh, of previous generations connects us to others in the body of Christ who preceded us 
prevents us from being overly impressed with the present generation. It's not all about us. We don't want we're not going, well, you may sing the music that appeals to my generation. That's the first generation in history that said that. Talk about arrogant. It's, uh, if, we are, if we're singing the great hymns of history of the faith, then it prevents us from becoming self-absorbed and arrogant and overly impressed with our generation. It reminds us of our heritage, our history, and our doctrinal distinctives. Fourth, wonderful, beautiful music elevates our own appreciation for music. If we sing good music, we will learn what good music is. If you sing mediocre music, you will only learn to appreciate mediocrity. Fifth, the timeless hymns that we sing help develop an atmosphere of majesty, splendor, and beauty. You know, one of the sad contradictions that we see when we watch the marriage of royalty in England We know the garbage that goes on in the background of some of the members of the royal family. But when you watch that marriage ceremony and you know the music that they're singing, that is majestic. And many of them are great hymns of the faith. And and it elevates our consciousness just listening to that music. It, It drives us up and not down. When we come together... We're coming together to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and who redeemed us. We're not worshiping or singing songs that are going to impress our next-door neighbor. So it should be different. Six, the enduring hymns that we sing should deepen and enhance our spiritual lives. And then last, what we sing should elevate our thoughts toward God, his person, his work, and his gracious provision for us, rather than simply elevate our emotions. It's not about us, it's about God. And our worship at West Houston Bible Church, should be we should be challenged by this. We may not, our standard is the best we can do. Not the best some other congregation can do, but the best we can do and thinking and realizing that this is very much a part of our spiritual life. It's not just something that's tacked on. It's part of our spiritual life, and we should do the best we can and excel at it with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be challenged by your word, to realize that all that we do, Everything we do at church, everything we do with the rest of our lives should be done to glorify you. You are the standard. You are the focal point. You are the, the reason, the basis, the foundation for everything, and that we should do what we do to bring honor and glory to you. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. We pray that at this time you would make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty so that you would not have to. He paid the penalty so that all that you need to do is trust in him to accept that free gift of salvation. And the instant you do, you become a new creature in Christ. You are regenerated. You're justified. You're redeemed. All of these things are yours, and that can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.